Welcome to our annual update podcast. My name is Greg Burgess. I'm one of the partners in the employment team. Uh, and between myself and Simon Bellon, we'll be doing this webinar today. Good morning, Simon. Hi. Morning, everybody. Um, so you're hopefully in today going to get a fairly comprehensive sort of look back as to what were the highlights from the employment law world of 2023. Uh, and I'm going to deal with that section. Uh, and then Simon's going to do the 2024 section, which talks about some of the legislation that came into effect in the new year uh, and also looking forward to some of the things that are ahead over the next 12 months or so. Okay, so if we get stuck in and I'm going to pick out a couple of cases, first of all, um, which look at developments that were uh, came through in the last 12 to 18 months in relation to strikes um, and strike action. And the first case involved um, one of the infamous um, politicians of the last 18 months, Mr. Kwasi Kwarteng. So this was a case involving some legislation which has been in place for around 20 years. Um, and it's a piece of legislation which deals with the ability to use um, for agency workers to be used during a strike. And for 20 years or so, um, the rules were that it wasn't possible for agents agencies to provide strike workers um, as replacements during strike action. And in 2015, there was a government consultation looking at whether to repeal that legislation. And the general response to the consultation was there was opposition to that legislation being repealed. And then in 2022, in the summer, that was when Kwasi Kwarteng was the Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. And he rushed through some legislation which um, sought to um, remove that restriction on agencies providing workers in a strike situation. And 13 unions went to the High Court to challenge that legislation um, on a judicial review. Uh, and they were successful. The government lost. And what was quite telling in the High Court judgment was the sort of damning comments made around the government's position. They were relying on a, on a public consultation in 2015, which in itself was well out of date. Um, and in any event, it was quite clear that Kwasi Kwarteng hadn't actually himself properly considered that consultation. Um, and therefore, the government was unsuccessful. So that new piece of legislation around providing agency workers um, in a strike situation has not been repealed and it is still uh, unlawful to to do so. Next case um, dealing with um, strike workers, and this was in the press throughout the, la the last 12 months, was around this new legislation that they uh, are have brought in in relation to minimum service levels. Okay, and the principle here is that there's the government identified certain key sectors where it should be required that a minimum level of service should be um, brought in. And on the 6th of November last year, um, regulations um, would be laid before Parliament. And these were the sectors initially, rail, ambulance and border force, where the government said there should be minimum service levels. And you'll see in the top of the slide that the other sectors were uh, health, fire and rescue and education. 
So certain sectors already have regulations that are going to be laid before Parliament, setting out these minimum service levels. The actual rules haven't come into effect yet, so we're still going through that um, initial phase of going through government uh, consultation. Uh, and the question really arises, although it's been in the press that this would be introduced, will it actually come into force? Um, for two reasons. Firstly, it's still highly likely that the unions will challenge the legislation through a judicial review. Um, and also, um, the Labour uh, Party manifesto uh, or Labour position is, is that they will repeal this if they get into power. So whilst we've heard a lot of noise about minimum service levels, um, we're still not sure whether it will actually come into a, into force. So we, we'll keep an eye out for that. And of course, we'll send any updates that we have in relation to that. Okay, let's talk about a juicy case because we all like juicy cases. Okay, so um, I've picked out four or five cases just to sort of uh, draw out some learning points for you all um, from those cases. And because I'm a bit of a sadist, I've also tried picking ones which have fairly juicy facts. And this one has quite juicy facts in as much as the claimant, uh, a Mrs. Cheryl Ambus, um, took a quite unusual approach to how she wanted to seek a promotion in her role at the National Bank of Greece. The actual question in the case was, um, for a person that's dismissed in a disciplinary, does the dismissing officer have to actually meet with the um, with the claimant, with the employee. Now, in most of the cases, if not all the cases that you deal with where you've got a disciplinary and you've got a potential dismissal, the 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 employee will have a meeting with a dismissing officer. In this case, there wasn't a meeting. But let me go through the story and then um, I'll explain to you what we can take from it. So Mrs. Cheryl Ambus worked for the bank um, and her line manager was a Mr. Vattis. And Mr. Vattis was the uh, country manager in the UK for the National Bank of Greece. Mrs. Cheryl Ambers thought she should get a promotion. And on the 23rd of January, 2019, in fact, so it goes back some time, she emailed Mr. Vattis um, with an explanation as to why she thought she should get a promotion. And within that email, she also attached a spreadsheet which set out um, a whole list of the bank's UK clients, their private clients. Now, that email she sent to Mr. Vattis, she also blind copied to her solicitor and to her trade union representative. But of course, it was blind copied, so Mr. Vattis wasn't aware of that. Now, next day, 24th of January, she then sends that same email to her brother, and he works at another bank, so not the National Bank of Greece. And on that same day, shortly after the 24th of January, she sends that email to her HR manager at the National Bank of Greece, copying in her trade union rep. So the HR manager realized that the email had been copied outside of the organization, um, and that caused the bank obvious concern. So Mr. Battis. Um, speaks to um, the claimant, Mrs. Sharon Ambers, about the email, the fact it's been copied outside the organisation. And then on the 28th of January, there's an investigation meeting. Um, and Mr. Vattis says to Mrs. Sharon Ambers, there's a, you know, there's a data breach here. We've had to notify the um, 
ICO and the FCA, because they're a regulated organization, of course. All their client data has gone outside of the organization. This is a real cause for concern. So then fast forward a couple of weeks, and there's a disciplinary. Now, the disciplinary was not handled by Mr. Vatis. It was handled by Mr. Hood. And Mr. Hood um, chaired the disciplinary hearing and that was in relation to the email which had been copied to the TU rep, the email to HR that had been copied to the TU rep. And it was after the disciplinary hearing that the bank then discovered that there was also um, the email, the first email, which had been blind copied to the solicitor and the TU rep. So they became aware that on two occasions um, that she had sent it to um, outside of the organization, as well as the third occasion to her brother. Um, so the bank was understandably um, up in arms about this, and they wanted to move towards dismissal. And in their policies, it made it quite clear that a dismissal could only be carried out by the country manager. And in this case, the country manager was Mr. Vatis. So Mr. Hood made a recommendation to Mr. Vatis that there should be a dismissal. Um, Mr. Vatis looked at the papers and reviewed and wrote to Mrs. Cheryl Ambers, um, and he dismissed her. He did not call her to a meeting to dismiss her because he felt that, firstly, he had knowledge anyway from his previous dealings when the uh, initial breach had occurred. And secondly, Mr. Hood had gone through a, a comprehensive investigation himself, and he was comfortable that he had read all the papers that um, Mrs. Cheryl Ambers had been given every opportunity to explain her position. Um, and the upshot of this was that the tribunal felt that the dismissal was within the band of reasonable responses. The procedural flaw, if you like, of not actually meeting with the employee wasn't fatal to the fairness of the dismissal, and therefore the dismissal was fair. So it was a slightly unusual an outcome in a case where you know, as I say, in probably 49 out of 50, 99 out of 100 cases, we would have the dismissing officer meet physically with the employee. But even though there wasn't that meeting in this case, the tribunal felt that Mrs. Sharon Ambers had been given every opportunity to explain her position. Mr. Vatis was fully um, conversant with all the facts, and he was able to make a decision to dismiss without actually physically meeting uh, Mrs. Sharon Ambers uh, at the point of dismissal. Okay. Um, redundancy. Let's deal with a case about redundancy. And this case came through in about November of 2023, so two or three months ago. Uh, and this case involved um, a redundancy off the back of early stages of COVID. Um, and it deals with smaller scale redundancies. So we're not talking about collective redundancies where you're getting rid of 20 or more people. We're talking about smaller scale redundancies um, for a smallish business. But let me just go through the, um, the facts. So the company was a UK subsidiary of ADP, which as you will probably all know is a huge um, HR technology company. Um, but they have different arms to their business. In the UK, they had a recruitment company as one of their subsidiaries, um, which had around 60 staff. And 
around 16 of those 60 staff at the point where we first went into lockdown in around March of 2020 were recruiting into one client, which was Goldman Sachs. So they had a team of 16 people just recruiting into Goldman Sachs. They had another subsidiary in the UK, which had about 900 staff. So they had different subsidiaries of different shapes and sizes. Um, Early stages COVID, uh, around a 50% reduction in the staff needed to be recruited into Goldman Sachs. Um, And in May of 2020, a decision was taken to reduce the size of the UK workforce because the requirements of Goldman Sachs had gone right down. Now, a discussion took place between the UK HR and uh, HR in the States and the management in the States. And in June of 2020, the um, US management sent to the UK a standard matrix for how to um, go through um, or select for redundancy. And what happened was, was in the UK, a scoring process took place for all 16 staff who were working on this Goldman Sachs contract. And the claimant in this case, the bank Haycox, um, scored the lowest out of those 16 people. Um, Internal discussion is still going on. This is in June of 2020. Um, The employer decides they're going to go from 16 to 14 in terms of that team who had been working on the Goldman Sachs account. But it wasn't until the end of June of 2020 that they first began their consultations with the staff. And over a two-week period from the 30th of June 2020 to 14th of July 2020. So in that two-week period, there was a consultation process. Um, And in that consultation process, the claimant wasn't given their own scores um, or made aware of their colleagues' scores, but they were told that they had been um, selected for redundancy. Um, And the question, the main question that arose from this case was whether or not the consultation should have started earlier. And what the tribunal found um, and the uh, EAT supported was that the company should have began that consultation earlier. It was quite clear that there was these internal discussions going on between the states and the UK during the course of May and into June. There was provisional scorings taking place uh, at that time uh, and uh, the consultation should have started before it actually did because it was effectively a fait accompli when they went to the, the employee at the end of June and said, well, you've been selected. Um, in terms of redundancies and how to approach scoring and selection, this is just sort of my general approach. Um, I, I go back to the days of the statutory dismissal procedures and there was a, there was case law at that time which said that where you're doing scoring and selection, you do need to go to your staff and consult about the proposed criteria. Um, And then the question arises, when you have gone through the scoring and the um, selection process, what do you share with the individual, with the employees who are provisionally selected? And I would always say to any client, you share the individual scores and the rationale for those scores with examples, if you can. and also you share, you share the cutoff score. So if you've got a pool of 10 people, and let's say you're, you're going to get rid of three out of those 10, for those three that are in the bottom of that cohort of 10, you would say, okay, well, your scores are the lowest. The sixth person's score is this. So they know what they need to get to 
to try and um, show um, that they should not be selected for redundancy. So that's a general approach I I would advise clients to take in this case. And it, I do see it happen still even these days. Scorings take place without any consultation with staff. Um, and this case supports the fact that there should be earlier consultation with the affected employees. Okay, going in a completely different direction now, um, a case involving um, neurodiversity, um, which is an ever-increasing difficulty in our experience for employers, and certainly various members of our team have dealt with some pretty difficult cases over recent years around the dyslexias, dyspraxias, or autism-type um, conditions. And this was a case involving um, a person who had uh, various disabilities, including dyslexia, Asperger's, and in actual fact, um, hearing loss um, in his left ear. So Mr. McQueen um, had worked for the General Optical Council for some years, um, and he had these conditions of which the uh, council was aware of them. Um, and for some time, there had been a problem in relation to his conduct. Um, in 2015, um, his manager told him to prioritise certain work. He wasn't prioritising his work as they had uh, wanted him to. Uh, and there was a clear evidence that Mr McQueen's response to that was very aggressive um, and was rude to his manager. In 2016, same manager asked him to clear the backlog of work on a particular project and again there was evidence that Mr McQueen had had a complete meltdown when he had been asked by his manager to do this. Um, the council had obtained occupational health advice around this time and to find out and to understand his conditions, to understand the impact his conditions might have on his behaviour and his performance at work and what the OH advice said was that um, he finds it difficult to deal with changes to the ways of working. And so the recommendation from OH was that the changes, any changes to his work should be communicated in writing first. Now then, after the 2016 meltdown, there was further issues of misconduct uh, and led to um, disciplinary warnings, which ultimately led to his dismissal from work. Now, the question uh, was whether his dismissal was for reasons related to his disability. So in disability discrimination, there's there's direct and indirect discrimination, as we'll all be familiar with. There's harassment and there's victimization, um, but also there's reasonable adjustments, as you know, but also there's this Section 15 claim for discrimination arising from disability. We've had a lot of cases over recent years where tribunals are trying to grapple with these claims under Section 15. And to be quite frank, from our perspective as, as advisors, as employment lawyers, these are the claims which employers struggle most with and they're the most dangerous claims without any shadow of a doubt. So just to explain um, how Section 15 works, if a person is um, treated unfavorably for something arising from their disability, then that could potentially be discriminatory unless it can 
be justified. So if someone's off sick and they are then um, dismissed for their absence, the absence may arise from their disability. And the question is whether or not uh, dismissal was ultimately justifiable in those circumstances. That's a sort of basic example. In this example, what we've got is we've got a series of different misconducts, if you call it that. But Mr. McQueen says, well, actually, that was because of my um, my Asperger's and perhaps my dyslexia. Uh, so it was all connected with my disabilities. Now, in this case, the tribunal um, found in favour of the employer. Because what the tribunal said was that the OH advice was um, clear in as much as it said that he, he struggles with changes to ways of working. But the challenges that he had been um, disciplined for, which included about prioritizing certain work, clearing backlogs of work, weren't around changes to the ways of working. They were different. And so there wasn't enough connection between his misconduct or his behavior and his disability. But that's a very fine line, I think. And um, in this area where we see a growing number of cases, there's very contrasting and subtly different decisions that have been come through from the tribunal. So it is a very difficult area um, to manage from your perspective as employers. Um, and um, it is an area that, you know, in terms of advising on risk, as we do all the time for our clients, um, it's one where we would always say, you know, you've got to manage your risk carefully. Um, so where you've got neurodivergent individuals, you know, the more clarity you can get about the condition, its impact on their day-to-day -day life and also their working life, then the better. The challenge that we find in practice is that um, finding a good, for example, OH provider who can understand, assess, analyze neurodivergent employees is, um, is quite difficult. Um, certainly, um, I know of one provider, uh, a name I've been given, I haven't dealt with myself, but one of the team members uh, here at DMH has dealt with them, uh, and apparently they are good on neurodivergence. So if that's um, a contact that you need, just put your um, details in the in the chat and the uh, marketing team in the background will pick it up and we'll send you their details, or, or just drop me an email. Okay, um, so... Uh, Next, we go in a different direction again, and we're going to talk about without prejudice um, communications um, and when the without prejudice um, protection is lost. So let me tell you the story in this case. It was quite an interesting um, story um, in as much as it involved a Mrs. Garrod, who was the company secretary for this Riverstone management uh, company. Uh, and she raised a grievance uh, in late October of 2019, so on the 30th of October. And she alleged various things, in including bullying and maternity discrimination over a five-year period. Um, Ten days later, and this is where the case gets interesting for some people in this area, because what happened was, was that um, Riverstone Management had an employment law advisor a guy called Harry Sherrard, who some of you may know, he works in the southeast um, in the same market as we work in. Um, and Riverstone asked Harry to have a meeting with Mrs. Garrod on the 8th of November. Um, 
and, and in, in advance of the meeting, they even offered Mrs. Garrod £500 for legal support to attend the meeting. Um, and at the start of the meeting, Harry said to Mrs. Garrod, I want to have a without prejudice discussion with you. Um, and in the course of that discussion, which she agreed to, uh, Harry said that from the employer's perspective, the relationship is fractured um, and problematic, were words that he used. Uh, and an offer was made of £80,000 to settle her claim. She refused. Um, and so they proceeded from there. The next step was there to be a grievance meeting. And that happened on the 3rd of December 2019. Now, when it then went to court through the litigation, um, Mrs. Garrard wanted to rely on the without prejudice or the 8th of November meeting um, as part of her claim. And what the employer said well, was that, that was a without prejudice meeting. Um, and the question for the court in this case was whether or not it was truly without prejudice. As you may be aware, just for an employer to say this is without prejudice doesn't mean by any means that it will have without prejudice protection. And the case law over um, recent years suggests that there needs to be a genuine dispute between the parties, um, which may lead to the termination of employment for there to be without prejudice protection. Um, and what Mrs. Garrett was saying in this case was, well, there wasn't really a genuine dispute at this stage. I'd raised a grievance. We hadn't heard that grievance. Um, and so there wasn't that dispute in place. But the, tri the tribunal and the court found against Mrs. Garrard, it was clear that she understood what was meant by without prejudice. She was a company secretary, so she had some element of legal qualification. Mrs. Garrard also alleged in her evidence that Harry had been aggressive towards her during that meeting, and the tribunal found that that wasn't the case. Um, so there needs to be sufficient evidence of a dispute. Having a grievance in place on its own doesn't mean that there's going to be without prejudice protection, but it's fairly strong evidence if a grievance has been raised for there to be a dispute which may lead to the termination of employment and potential litigation um, for the without prejudice protection to, to, to have effect. So in our daily lives, you will, I'm sure all of you, as do um, we, we're advising on without prejudice all the time. You will have conversations all the time um, on what you call a without prejudice basis. Um, but just be aware that there is um, this potential issue if there's no dispute in place at the time around without prejudice protection. And this is slightly different to the framework under Section 111A, which is the pre-termination negotiations, which applies to unfair dismissal. So typically where you have a performance issue, um, you may want to give the employee the option of either going through a performance process or having a conversation, a pre-termination negotiation. Um, so where there's no issues around, for example, discrimination, um, then you can have the Section 111A protection and have a pre-termination negotiation. Um, so that's a slightly different framework because outside of that framework, you still have potential discrimination risks. So you've got to be clear when you go into these discussions, do you have discrimination risks? If you do, will we be able to genuinely um, deem this to be without prejudice? 
And in this case, where Mrs. Garrett had raised her complaints about um, bullying and harassment over a long period of time, she was fairly um, aware of sort of the legal framework around without prejudice discussions. There was sufficient evidence of there being a dispute and potential litigation for her to um, not, um, sorry, for the without prejudice protection to to be retained. Okay, um, just a couple more things from me. Um, and prepare yourselves because there's going to be a poll in a second. So you're going to do a little bit of work yourselves. Um, so before I get into that, let's just talk about subject access requests. So we see um, ever-increasing numbers of subject access requests and ever-increasing frustration for employers, data controllers dealing with those requests. And they are without doubt a... a a weapon or a tool in an employee's armory in terms of making things difficult for employers, but also trying to draw out information from the employer, which is what the whole purpose of the requests are. Um, and on the 24th of May last year, the ICO published new guidance um, for dealing with subject access requests. Um, they said that between April of 2022 and March of 2023, they had, this is the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office, had received around 15,800 complaints about subject access requests. So it is an area where there's a lot of activity for disgruntled employees to go to the ICO and say, I've made this request, my employer hasn't responded, or haven't responded in time, they haven't given me everything they've got. Um, and then uh, complaints are made. Now, the guidance, um, I must say, is very useful. So if you are dealing with um, subject access requests, uh, that should be your first port of call in terms of um, there's a very useful Q&A section of it, which deals with the sort of issues that we see come up when we're asked to advise on subject access, access requests. So things such as, how you go about clarifying the request, whether uh, there's uh, genuine evidence of the request being manifestly excessive is an expression we use because it's going to draw out tens of thousands of documents uh, potentially. Um, when you can withhold information, when the management information exception can apply. Um, so I do really uh, commend to you that guidance and do make sure that when you're dealing with requests that you do have that in mind and you do look at it because it does provide um, useful answers to some common questions that we see come up. And I say there in the, in the final bullet point, um, and it's very important that when you are dealing with a request and you're making decisions about what to disclose and what not to disclose, that you record in writing your rationale for making certain decisions. Because if it is then challenge, it goes to the ICO and the ICO come and um, uh, want to talk to you, you'll need to be able to explain your rationale, for example, for uh, not disclosing certain documents, let's say. So maybe you're relying on one of the exemptions and you need a paper trail to show why you were relying on a particular exemption, for example. Okay. Okay. Uh, so just finally from me, I always in the annual updates like to sort of try and give some insight into the where we are in terms of the tribunal uh, system. Um, as you'd imagine, we deal with tribunals all around the country. And in terms of how um, 
efficient, how busy each different tribunal is. It very much is a different picture in different parts of the country. Um, so certainly in my recent experience, I've seen in Scotland claims getting listed relatively quickly. Um, and certainly compared to the tribunals in London and the Southeast, we still very much see quite a blockage in the system. And we are seeing multi-day cases, for example, listed in Croydon. If you're looking, if it's going to be like a four or five day plus hearing, you won't get a hearing uh, for another 18 months, perhaps two years. What we are seeing, though, in shorter cases in London and the southeast, say a one day or two day unfair dismissal case, they are coming on much quicker. So if you are looking, I did a preliminary hearing last week um, and we were offered a one day unfair dismissal hearing on the 12th of March. So quite, and that's in Croydon. So that's quite unusual to be offered something so quickly. Um, and that's just because we're now seeing the backlog starting to be cleared. We've seen the recruitment of more judges and there is some freeing up, but we've still got a lot of claims in the system. So the annual stats, you know, which have been published for 22-23, show that 95,000 claims are issued in, in a 12-month period, which is back to where we were before the introduction of the fees way back when. Um, when they were abolished in 2017, they rose in terms of claims to well over 100,000. So we've come back from, from that point. Um, unlawful deduction and breach of contract become uh, sorry, remain the most prevalent claims. And most claims have more than one jurisdiction. So what, what, what I mean by that is, for example, your typical unfair dismissal claim will also include a claim for wrongful dismissal if, for example, you haven't paid notice because you dismiss them for gross misconduct. So we see um, most often multiple jurisdiction claims rather than just single jurisdiction. I was slightly surprised to see that as much, many as 60% of claimants are represented in, in claims. And we deal with claimants uh, in person and we deal with them who are represented. Our experience always will be that um, it's much easier to deal with claims where the claimant is represented because claimants acting on their own can be quite difficult um, to deal with. Um, that's me done for now. Um, so thank you. We're in good time, Simon. So over to you to, to look ahead. Thanks, Greg. That's great. So I'm going to look ahead uh, into this year. And my first piece of advice is don't take any holiday around about late March or early April, because a lot of the um, changes that I'm going to be talking about are going to be um, coming into effect then. Um, there's a lot going on. Some years we have a lot of change. Um, some some years very little, but 2024, I think, will be um, quite a busy year in terms of getting our heads around some new ideas and also some changes to existing arrangements. So I'm going to start off by looking at uh, a few changes that came into effect at the beginning of the year. So first one related to TUPI and consultation. So you'll know that if you're going through a TUPI process, there's an obligation on employer and employee, uh, sorry, transferor and transferee to consult with uh, employee representatives. And that can be kind of cumbersome, where it's a, a small process, small transaction. Um, up until 1st of January, if uh, the employer employed fewer than 10 employees, 
it was possible for the employer to consult directly with the employees rather than having to go through employee reps. Um, that's now been expanded so that the ability to consult directly with the employees who are affected by the transfer rather than having to use uh, ask them to, to have an election and elect reps, that um, comes into play where the employer employs less than 50 people or where the transfer involves less than 10 people. The only exception is if you've already got appointed representatives. So if there's a trade union already recognised in relation to the employees, then you do have to go to the um, appointed reps, the trade union in that situation. Um, moving on to working time. Uh, so the uh, Deutsche Bank ca uh, case imposed quite a burden in terms of record keeping. And uh, the requirement that was uh, identified in that case was that a record had to be kept of all working time to for the employer to prove that they were compliant. That's been relaxed so that now an employer doesn't have to keep a record of the daily working hours of all workers, so long as they're able to demonstrate compliance without doing so. And the, the legislation allows the employer to maintain the records in such manner as they uh, reasonably think fit. So it's still a bit vague, but where there's the uh, opportunity to demonstrate compliance without necessarily recording every minute, every hour, then you can take advantage of that. The next one's a big one, which you probably all heard about in the press, and that's annual leave and holiday pay. And so many of us have had to grapple with the question of how do you deal with holiday for people who work irregular uh, hours or people who only work for part of the year, such as term time only workers. And um, the law has not made life easy. Uh, what it said is that you must use a averaging calculation so that you look at the previous 52 weeks before the period when the employee uh, took holiday, you work out what their average uh, pay was during that 52-week period, and that will be the amount of pay that you have to pay them when they take their holiday. And that is quite a tricky and cumbersome process. And for many employers, an easier process has been to simply uh, apply an approach of rolled up holiday pay. Now, rolled up holiday pay for people who aren't familiar with it is the concept of saying, right, we're going to add a supplement to somebody's basic pay to reflect the holiday pay that they're entitled to. And the supplement is calculated at 12.07% of their pay. And the reason why 12.07% is a magic figure is that that is the percentage that if you get, that you get if you divide the statutory entitlement to holiday, 5.6 weeks, by the rest of the working year, which is 46.4 weeks. That comes out at 12.07%. So you could pay somebody for their holiday pay by simply paying that some supplement of 12.07%. Now, the difficulty was that uh, the uh, courts 
have always said that no it's critical that people are able to to take their holiday and that they get paid at the time that they take the holiday so this process of just applying a supplement to their basic pay didn't meet the um the, the design of of holiday uh so it's been unlawful even though it's been unlawful people have carried on doing and in some occasions at risk of um, falling foul of the regulations well the good news is that it's now been recognized as a lawful arrangement for people as i say who are part-year workers or people who work irregular working hours so you can meet your obligations to pay holiday pay by paying that supplement of 12.07 percent on top of basic pay there's not an obligation to do it that way so if you prefer to use the averaging method uh, calculating an average over 52 week period then yes you can do that um other important changes you know from some of the cases that there's been a lot of debate about what needs to be included within normal remuneration when you're paying holiday pay is it basic pay only or is it basic pay plus an element to reflect commission that people typically earn. The, 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 the amendment has made clear that commission must be included as part of normal pay. Other changes, employees on family leave, they can now carry over holiday to the next holiday year. So if you're prevented from taking your annual leave because you've been on some form of family leave, then you can take over up to 28 days of that annual leave into the next holiday year. The helpful thing is that just in the last week or so, the government's issued its guidance, and that's been published on the GovUK website, and well worth having a visit and having a read of that. There's a lot of complexity behind some of the calculations, but the guidance sets it all out pretty well. So that's quite a big one. Um, another big one is uh, reform to flexible working arrangements. Now, what the, the government wants to do here is to make it easier, basically, for uh, employees to apply for flexible working. And the government wants to encourage employers to agree to requests for flexible working. Keep in mind that flexible working can cover a number of things. So it, it could be a request to change the working hours. It could be a request to change the working pattern, or it could be a, a request to change work location. So particularly in the context of hybrid working, um, it's a uh, it's something that we're seeing a lot more of. Um, at the moment, somebody can only make um, one request in any 12-month period. The That's changing so that somebody can make two requests in a 12-month period. You can't have two requests on the go at the same time. You've got to wait for one to be processed before you submit any second request. But you can make two requests in any 12-month period. There's no longer a need for the employee to explain the effect that their request will have on the employer's operation. So it makes it a simpler process for the employee to make the request. Uh, an important one is that an employer is not entitled to refuse a request unless it has consulted with the employee. So that reinforces the obligation on the employer to deal with matters properly, get the request in, 
arrange a meeting with the uh, employee, talk through the request, and um, you can only re refuse it after you've gone through that process. Uh, the, the time for the employer to complete the process has been reduced from three months to two. We've still got the same set of um, reasons that the employer is entitled to rely on if it does refuse the request. And keep in mind that there's no obligation to agree a request. I mean, we, we get a lot of um, requests for advice in relation to hybrid working, as I say, so there's no obligation to agree it. But the one thing that you've got to be wary of when you're dealing with these requests is the possibility of a discrimination claim. So where you've got any protected characteristic at play, so it might be a female employee seeking to work part-time, then be conscious of the, the potential for an indirect discrimination claim. Similarly, if somebody is saying, well, look, I need to change my hours or where I work because of uh, a health condition, is there a possibility of a disability um, issue uh, coming into play? Yeah, and there's an important link between the duty to make reasonable adjustments and the way in which these flexible working requests um, are dealt with. You, uh, I mentioned uh, April, so this change is coming into force on 6th of April. Uh, importantly, um, it's a day one right. So Historically, somebody will have had to have been employed for 26 weeks before they could make a request. But uh, from now, or from the 6th of April, it's going to be a day one right. And again, there's a bit of help from um, government or government agencies. So ACAS have updated its code of practice on flexible working. So that incorporates the changes that are going to take place on the 6th of April. Now, quite a similar um, provision um, is a new one. Uh, so it relates to the right to request a predictable working pattern. This, I think, um, could uh, have quite an impact later on in the year. So it's anticipated that it will be in play in September of this year. And what it, uh, it stems from is the Taylor Review uh, which took place in 2017. So that was a review into you know, workplace arrangements generally. And what it identified is the imbalance, really, uh, between the, uh, the, the rights of an, somebody engaging workers uh, to uh, on a zero-hours, casual basis, and unpredictable working patterns, where the employer has the opportunity to pick and choose when they offer work. And um, it's sometimes not easy for the employee to say yes or no to that work. And they don't have any predictability as to when they're going to be asked to, to be working or when they're going to be working on the amount of work that they're going to be asked to do, which creates, for some people, um, difficulty. So uh, the remedy to that was, is this provision, which offers people who work unpredictable on an unpredictable basis the opportunity to request greater cer certainty. Um, so who has the, uh, the right to request um, greater certainty? It, it's where there's a lack of predictability in the individual's work pattern where the request that they're making relates to that working pattern, 
and where the purpose of the application is to obtain a more predictable pattern. Um, the individual will need to have been employed for or engaged because it applies to workers as, as well as employees for a minimum of 26 weeks. It'd be possible to make two applications in any 12-month period. And similar to the flexible working uh, regulations and applications, it the, the employer can only reject a request on certain statutory grounds. And those grounds are very similar. They're not quite the same as the grounds upon which an employer can rely if it rejects a flexible working application, but they are, are very similar. Um, it's worth mentioning a couple of other things. One is that I mentioned that in order for somebody to be able to make a request for a more predictable working pattern, there has to be uh, unpredictability in their existing working arrangements. And what the regulations say is that if somebody is employed on a fixed term contract for 12 months or less, it will automatically be assumed that their working pattern is unpredictable. So that means that anybody who's employed on fixed term contract of less than 12 months will have the ability to use this provision. So somebody in that situation could apply for a permanent contract or could apply for a longer contract. So that's worth remembering if you engage people on fixed, short fixed term contracts. The other important element is agency workers. Agency workers have the protection of this legislation as well. So they will be able to apply for a predictable working pattern uh, and they can make their application to either the agency that they work for or to the hirer and the application for a predictable working pattern can include an application for permanent employment. So you can see that particularly in the context of agency workers, we could see a significant number of applications uh, for permanent positions within the organization that they are assigned to be working for. So I, again, I think that this is a big one. You know, it's um, flexible working, zero hours contracts. It's in some situations, it suits the employee to, to, or the worker to have that unpredictability. But in many situations, people are forced re really into a situation where they're undertaking that sort of work and would have a desire for greater predictability and greater certainty. So I think that this is going to be a popular piece of legislation in terms of it, its uptake if it's introduced in September, which is the plan at the moment. Um, Non-compete clauses. Um, this uh, is it's, it's not a major change. So the the issue here is government says that non-compete clauses get in the way of the labour market. So they prevent people from being able to change jobs, they're anti-competitive, and they're basically a hindrance to, um, to business. And uh, the proposed reform is that 
there should be a cap of three months on the period for which a non-compete clause can be effective. I think it's important to recognise that the, the proposal only relates to non-compete clauses. And you know from your contracts of employment, if you have these sorts of provisions in them, that as well as a, a simple non-compete clause, i.e. you won't go and join a, a competitor within a period of X months, or you won't get involved in a competing business for X months, quite often we see provisions which say you mustn't solicit our clients or customers for a period of six months, or you mustn't deal with any of our clients or customers for a period of six months. Those non-solicitation and non-dealing clauses aren't covered by these proposals. So it's purely the non-compete clauses that are covered. And the proposal is that they should be limited to a period of three months. Um, and, and if the uh, reforms are introduced, then guidance is expected. Menopause, this is, uh, it's less a change in the, um, the law. Uh, it's more a kind of um, government initiative and um, ensuring that employers are adequately equipped to, to, to support employees and to, to deal with these situations. And government introduced a, a policy paper in October 23. It introduced a menopause employment champion and provided more government more guidance for employers. It's basically an attempt to influence behavior, to provide resources to support. And one of the sources of help is the government website Help to Grow. Um, so as I say, it's just a, a marker. I mean, it's a, a topic which has been probably quite, quite prevalent in terms of uh, HR discussions over the last decade now. I can remember we, we raised it in one of our sessions about 10 years ago, and it's becoming you know, an increasing discussion within the workforce. Moving on, um, this is a, a big one, fire and rehire. Um, so what we're talking about here is the process which is adopted where an employer is seeking to bring about a change in employees' terms of employment. And we know that an employer isn't entitled to unilaterally change the terms of uh, an employee's employment. They have to either get an employee's agreement to that change, or if they can't get the employee's agreement, then they are the only other way of, of effecting a change in terms of employment is to go through a process of dismissal and re-engagement, which has been given the moniker of fire and rehire. Now, interestingly, this code of practice, uh, which aims to control the way employers go about that process, was uh, was introduced after a lot of the outcry that followed the behaviour of P&O when it sacked many of the workers who worked on its um, ferries and replaced them with other workers. So in, in that situation, that P&O were engaged in a process of firing and then rehiring others. But what this legislation deals with is the process of firing existing staff and 
offering in, um, fresh terms to those existing staff. So it's firing and rehiring the same staff. And the, um, the, the draft code of pra practice was published by the, the government in January 23. Consultation closed uh, in relation to it in April 23. Um, we haven't received the government's response to that consultation. Um, so we're still waiting to see what happens. Um, I think it's worth mentioning that Labour, if it were elected, would end the practice totally. But the government's proposals basically set out a step-by-step -step approach that the employer must follow. And the, at the heart of the approach is that the employer must consult meaningfully with trade unions, representatives, or the employees themselves. The employer must not use the threat of dismissal as a negotiating tactic. So that's what that's saying is that what you mustn't do is to say to the employees, right, if you don't agree to this change in the terms of, of your employment, then we're going to go through this process of fire and rehire and going to force it through in any case. You know, that, that is perceived by the government as a bullying tactic. And what it is saying is that once it's clear employees will not agree, uh, the employer should re-examine uh, its plans. So you can see that the, the idea is to force the employer to go through a process of consultation, force the employer to listen to what the employees are saying, to listen to their objections, to try to see whether there are alternatives, and only adopt this process of fire and rehire as a, uh, as a last resort rather than going in there saying to the employees, right, you will agree to this change, because if you don't, then we're simply going to fire and rehire you. So quite an important one in, in terms of, of practice where you're planning on changing terms of employment. Right. Now, of course, these are all the proposals that we've got at the moment. If uh, Labour are elected at some stage in this year, then we'll have uh, a lot of more change. Um, now, in terms of timing, I guess there's a good chance that the changes won't be implemented in this calendar year, but it'd be interesting to have a look at what Labour are proposing. Well, the first thing that they say is that if they are elected, then they will introduce a new employment bill within 100 days of being elected. So they plan to attack the, uh, these issues quickly. What might they do? Um, well, the first thing is uh, they challenge the existing arrangements in terms of work-life balance and introduce things like a right to disconnect, so that recognising that a lot of people are now bringing the workplace into their homes and the potential harm that, that causes a right on the part of employers to just switch off, so that's switch off their their phones uh, to prevent access in terms of work emails, simply dis disconnect from systems. Um, transparency and fair pay. So the proposals there are to introduce a requirement to report on the ethnicity pay gap and to introduce a re requirement to take active steps to reduce the gender pay gap. Uh, they um, proposed to attack zero-hours contracts and ban them, to improve family-friendly rights. Um, so 
things like flexible working we talked about, and I was saying that the employer still has um, something of a free hand to reject an application for flexible working. Labour's proposal is that an employer must agree to a request for flexible working insofar as it's reasonable. Um, so just increasing the pressure on employers. Um, one very, very big change um, to um, employment law that is proposed by Labour is to review the different categories of worker and, and individual. So at the moment, as you know, we have employees who have a lot of statutory protection, most notably the right to be protected from unfair dismissal. We have workers who have a lot of protection. So they don't have uh, protection from unfair dismissal, but they have uh, protection in terms of discrimination, they have a right to national minimum wage, have a right to pay time off, holiday. And then we have the truly self-employed who really don't have many rights at all. Now, what Labour propose is that there should be only two categories. They should be the truly self-employed who don't have many rights, and then there should be the category of worker. Now, those who fall into the category of worker would have all the rights that employees currently have. So you can see that the consequence of that is that anybody who fall currently falls into the category of worker would then be upgraded in terms of employment rights and would have the same rights as employees so importantly, they would have the right to claim unfair dismissal. So that would be a big change. I mean, it's kind of coaching horses, really, in terms of the different types of, of worker or employee and st the status issue. Um, but it's of practical importance because it will expand employment rights for a category of, of, of worker who currently have much more limited rights. Um, and it would just copying back to the last slide, it will introduce day one rights. So that would be unfair dismissal rights from day one, which is a big change. Currently, as you all know, you need two years service to pursue a, a claim of ordinary unfair dismissal. That would become a um, a day, day one right. And they propose to remove the cap on compensation for unfair dismissal. So... Those are some big changes. Also, they're talking about changes in collective bargaining and in introducing fair pay arrangements so that there are processes of bargaining across an entire sector. So I think it, you know, in the event that Labour were elected, you know, there would be a, a lot of change probably coming through beginning part of next year rather than this year. Okay. Um, the next one is just some amendments in relation to discrimination legislation. Now, this is these are all bits and pieces, really. They've been introduced into UK law because of the impact of European law and because of the ongoing sort of refinement to our jurisdiction and our rules in terms of the laws that apply. These were these check these were things which were at risk of being lost unless they were in, in, implemented through legislation. So it's, it's worth just trotting through them. So in effect, from the first of January, 
it's be, been made clear that breastfeeding, breastfeeding is com- covered under direct sex dis- discrimination. So a claim relating to breastfeeding can be brought as a direct sex discrimination claim. Next one's an important one. Um, the extension of protection uh, in relation to pregnancy and maternity discrimination. Previously, the, the protection against pregnancy and maternity discrimination came to an end when the employee returned to work at the end of their protected period, whereas now the period for which they're protected is extended if the treatment is because of pregnancy or pregnancy-related illness during the period they were away from work. The next one relates to indirect discrimination. So there's a concept of discrimination by association. So for example, if I had responsibility as a carer for a disabled person, I could bring various types of claims by reason of associative discrimination. One claim I couldn't bring would be that I was indirectly discriminated against by my employer because of my association with a disabled person. That's now changed. So if, for example, the employer introduces a provision which says employees must attend at work in the office nine till five, and that impacts on me because I have responsibility as a carer for a disabled person, and it's more difficult for me to comply with that requirement, then I would have a claim of indirect discrimination. Next one relates to recruitment. So it's about statements made during recruitment processes. So if you make a statement uh, which is discriminatory, for example, older applicants need not apply, um, looking for a recent graduate, that would be a discriminatory statement. And it's been made clear that if you have a general discriminatory statement, even if you're not going through a recruitment exercise, then that general discriminatory statement could amount to discrimination. Um, And then the last one relates to the definition of disability. So as you know, Somebody's disabled if there is an adverse impact on their ability to carry out normal day-to-day activities. Sometimes there's a bit of a discussion as to, well, what are normal day-to-day activities? What does it include? Is that only things that you do at home or is it things that you do in the workplace as well? And it's been made clear that in when you're assessing whether or not somebody's disabled, you look at their you can look at their ability to participate. Um, fully in working activities, as well as what they do in their day-to-day life at home, for example. Right, the next one's a big one. Um, October 2024, so it's protection against sexual harassment of your employees. The proposal is that a duty will be introduced on an employer to take reasonable steps to prevent sexual harassment of their employees. What we're talking about here is sexual harassment of employees by their colleagues. When the bill was going through uh, Parliament, uh, the House of Lords removed a provision which 
expanded this duty to cover taking reasonable steps to prevent sexual harassment by third parties. So the, 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 this is a situation where the employer's control of its behaviour of its staff to each other, towards each other, and the obligation is to take reasonable steps to prevent sexual harassment. So what this is all about is having in place proper policies, having, uh, having in place proper training, making sure that the policies are more than simply lip service. If you don't do that, and if an employee brings a claim for sexual harassment in the tribunal, there can be a significant uplift in compensation if the employer could have taken more steps to prevent that sexual harassment. So you're clearly a good time during the summer to, to review your policies in terms of harassment and bullying. This is an interesting one from the last couple of weeks. The government, the Ministry of Justice, quietly yet has mooted the idea of reintroducing fees into the employment tribunal. So the government's issued a consultation paper. Now, the level of fee is much lower than the, the level of fee that existed um, five, six years ago. I mean, we, we saw fees going up to £1,000 if, if a case proceeded to hearing, and that was regarded by the Supreme Court as disproportionate. And that's why the Supreme Court declared that fees were unlawful. So Supreme Court didn't actually say that fees per se were unlawful. They just said that the fee that the government had introduced at that time was disproportionate. So the government has always had the opportunity of reintroducing fees, but at a lower level. And they pitched it pretty low, £55. Um, and um, my view, and shared by a lot of people, is that it'd be very hard to describe that as a disproportionate um, provision, that it's going to discourage people from pursuing a claim. Um, so we could start to see fees being applied. Um, consultation closes on that one on 25th of March. Um, paternity leave, I told you that there was a lot. Um, paternity leave regulations. So main changes there um, are the ability of employers to take their two-week paternity leave as two separate one-week blocks rather than just taking one week in total or two consecutive weeks. So they can split out into two blocks. There's the opportunity to take it at any time uh, in the 52 weeks after birth rather than at the moment you have to take it within 56 days. And the amount of notice that the employee has to give of their intention to take paternity leave has been reduced from 15 weeks to 28 days. So the aim there is to increase the uptake of paternity leave. Well, let's wait and see what happens. But it's obviously a, a quite a big change. And again, probably you're going to be looking at your policies and, and working out whether you need to make any amendment to those. Um, I think it's probably worth saying in, in passing that one of the uh, the things that we see is employers who get into trouble because people who make decisions in relation to things like flexible working requests in relation to dealing with paternity leave applications aren't necessarily 
skilled and don't necessarily understand all of the provisions. And so where the decisions are going to be taken by managers, I think that there's an education piece um, you know, because we can see that there's a, a lot of situations where employers are, are going to receive requests for, for changes in working patterns. And it's important that people understand the implications of the decisions that they take. Okay, um, another one. Again, 6th of April, 2024, carers leave. Um, so it's a right for employees to apply for one week of unpaid carers leave in any 12 month period. So it's a right from day one of uh, an individual's employment. Um, it applies if you have a dependent with a long-term care need. Um, requests can be in consecutive or non-consecutive periods for half or full days. Um, you've got to give notice to your employer, obviously. Employer can postpone a request if it's going to disrupt the operation of the business. And again, as with all of these provisions, the main protection for the employees is that they can't be subjected to a detriment. They can't be dismissed if they seek uh, or, or take uh, any of these um, provisions, such as carers leave. Right, so um, a couple of um, cases that are worth a, a quick look at. So just seeing how we're doing for time. Yeah, we've got 10 minutes. Um, so this one, it, it, again, it's it's not so much the, the case which is critical. It's more you know, looking at, okay, well, why, why, why is it, uh, where's its importance? And um, one of the protected characteristics under the Equality Act is somebody's philosophical belief. So somebody must not be discriminated against on the basis of their religion or philosophical belief. And we are seeing some stranger and stranger philosophical beliefs that are you know, reaching tribunal cases. And this one, um, uh, the employee, his philosophical belief was supporting Glasgow Rangers Football Club and um, the Employment Appeal Tribunal said, no, you can't rely that on that as a philosophical belief. And there's a, um, a test which is called the Granger test, which is um, applied um, by the courts in working out whether somebody's belief amounts to a philosophical belief that is protected. And just running through the Granger test, you, the, the, first of all, the belief of the individual needs to be genuinely held. So it needs to be a, a genuine belief. Um, it must be a belief and not an opinion or viewpoint that's simply based on present information available. It's got to relate to a weighty and substantial aspect of life and behaviour. It must have a certain level of cogency, seriousness, cohesion and importance. And importantly, it must be worthy of respect in a democratic, democratic society. We dealt with a, a case recently um, where an individual in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement expressed the view that all lives matter. And they then complained that they had been subjected to a detriment for saying all lives matter. Well, aside from the fact that uh, our client denied that the detriment related in any way to the, the statement that had been made, the tribunal had to ask itself, okay, is a statement that 
all lives matter, a philosophical belief that is protected. And it's quite a tricky question. We won the case. The the tribunal concluded that uh, it wasn't a protected characteristic. And the main reason was that it said that that is just a viewpoint. It's not a philosophical belief. It's a viewpoint um, that some people hold. And um, for that reason, it wasn't a protected characteristic. So you can see that there is a fine line between those general viewpoints and protected characteristics. Anyhow, I think it's an area that that may come up um, more regularly in the future. Um, Then the last case is it's it's going back to fire and rehire. And it's kind of interesting because I think this case may have been decided in a very different way had the government's proposals been in place at the time this was determined. So it relates to Tesco. And basically, Tesco's had offered employees uh, retained pay. It was as a, a payment to persuade staff uh, to, to remain. And um, it became part of the pay arrangements. And then employer, Tesco wanted to change its mind and remove the retained pay. And the, the approach that they took was to say, look, we're going to remove this supplement of retained pay. And uh, in return, we'll pay you a lump sum of 18 months. And then it's 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 removed as an entitlement. And uh, Tesco said that anybody who doesn't agree to this is going to have their employment terminated and they'll be offered re-engagement on the fresh terms, which won't include the retained pay, which is exactly the sort of practice that the, the government is seeking to outlaw. Now, the, the High Court granted the injunction that was impl- uh, applied for by the employees. Um, so the, the, the High Court was um, preventing from Tesco f- from doing this. But the Court of Appeal overturned it. And the Court of Appeal said, no, the injunction wasn't unjustified and said that the employer's actions were not unconscionable. So as I say, you know, I think that that case may well have been decided very differently um, had the, the government's um, proposals on hire and rehire, uh, sorry, fire and rehire been introduced at that point. Uh, and then lastly, just the new rates. So there's simply a table of new rates coming into effect April 2024. So national living wage is changing, uh, national minimum wage uh is changing too so just keep an eye on those i'm going to finish off just by a tale so in in, in, just in case you're feeling a little bit weighed down by the number of changes that have been introduced i saw a case yesterday in the newspaper that was reported if i can bring it up yeah Uh, because this perhaps give you some confidence and reassurance that there are other people who struggle more in terms of um bad behaviour of employers. So the the headline was Groom at the Epsom Derby winning stables wins £18,000 in discrimination case after her boss refused to get off her high horse when confronted over post-maternity leave working hours. A female groom at a prestigious stables has won a pregnancy discrimination case after one of her bosses refused to get off her horse during a meeting to discuss her childcare. She was awarded more than four, uh, eight, it was £18,000 in the end, after an employment tribunal expressed disbelief 
over the way she was treated at the historic Epsom Derby winning, winning stables. She had been in dispute with her bosses whilst on maternity leave as they were refusing to let her return to work on the same hours as before. When she visited the stables to discuss the issue, the owner's partner, who was helping to run the business, did not dismount from her ride, so the meeting was held in the stables with everyone forced to stand. The tribunal described the meeting as an indignity and said that they had never come across anything like that situation. So as I say, it's to give you confidence that I'm sure you're doing things an awful lot better than uh, than some people. Thanks, Simon. Well, you've had an hour and a half of Simon and I on our high horses about employment law, so that's thoroughly exciting for you all. Thank you for sticking with us. We do regular podcasts, um, so please do subscribe to those. We will carry on with some in-person seminars, a mixture of some webinars, um, but please do follow us on LinkedIn because that's your way of finding out what we've um, been doing, what we're planning and what we're publishing. Thanks very much indeed. <laughs>